1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing cultivating healthy mental states. This is chapter 13 in the book Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Nibbana*. Up until this point in our group learning program, we've been discussing a lot of various teachings related to aspects of the mind that we need to eliminate in order to attain enlightenment. This peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, we've talked a little bit about a quality here or quality there that we need to cultivate in the mind. But today, what we're going to be focusing on are those qualities of mind that we need to cultivate into the mind. So, as part of this path to enlightenment and awakening the mind, not only are we awakening the mind to the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. We're awakening the mind we're learning and gaining wisdom of this natural law in order to make better and better decisions in our life we're also eliminating certain unwholesome qualities from the mind and we've talked about that as craving anger and ignorance or greed hatred and delusion and then we also talked about the 10 fetters these individual taints or pollution of the mind that keeps the mind in the unenlightened state. And we've been talking about eliminating those from the mind as we've gone through this program. Well, today what we're going to be doing is talking about four mental qualities that we refer to as the brahma Viharas, And then we're gonna be talking about a fifth quality as well that isn't one of the brahma Viharas, but is something that needs to be cultivated in the mind on this path to enlightenment. So I would like to welcome all of you to today's class session, whether you're tuning in on Facebook, YouTube, or any of the other platforms that we're live streaming to. And if you're in our Zoom virtual classroom, I'd like to welcome you as well. Everybody can ask questions if you're in the Facebook, YouTube, or in our Zoom classroom by just typing in the comment section and you can ask questions. Our moderator, Max, will ensure that your question gets asked during the class. And for those of you in the zoom virtual classroom you can electronically raise your hand and we will call on you and make sure that you get a chance to either ask your question or any follow-up questions as we go so thank you for joining i'm really glad that you've chosen to learn and practice the teachings of gotama buddha on this path to enlightenment where you can train the mind to be peaceful calm serene and content with joy permanently where you will no longer experience a discontent mind, where the mind is sad or angry or frustrated or irritated or bored or lonely or have guilt or shame or fear, or any of these discontent feelings can be eliminated 100% from the mind as you learn and practice these teachings. So let's discuss the qualities of mind that need to be cultivated or brought into the mind in order for you to practice and then move the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. The first Brahma Vahara that I would like to share with you is called loving kindness. We've been talking about this in our program as it relates to the elimination of anger, hatred, or ill will. And we've even been doing loving kindness meditation as part of our practices on Wednesday when we do our Wednesday sessions of either breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation or chanting, we've been doing loving kindness meditation because practicing loving kindness meditation cultivates this quality of mind so that you can then practice it in daily life and therefore you eradicate one of the big problems in the mind which is hatred, anger and ill will. And there's lesser versions of this as well which kind of arise as kind of like irritation, annoyance, or dislike. So we refer to the poison in this more kind of dominant, stronger version, which is hatred, anger, and ill will, which is part of the three poisons, which is also part of the ten fetters. And one would not be able to attain enlightenment until they fully eradicate this from the mind. So the way that we eradicate this hatred or anger or ill will, where we push people away, we get irritated, annoyed, and we don't like what's going on around us. And we kind of become hostile with our speech and our actions. The way that we eradicate that is with loving kindness. Loving kindness is active goodwill. It's the opposite of hatred, anger, and ill will. And it's important that we have non-judgment as part of that, because we would need to practice active goodwill towards all beings, not just the people that agree with us, not just the people that we like or people that get along with us. It needs to be all beings, even people right now who maybe you're harboring a bit of dislike for, or you get annoyed or irritated. That's not because of them. It's not because of their speech or their actions. It's because your mind has this hatred or anger, ill will towards what's going on. And of course, there's craving, desire, attachment there that's causing these discontent feelings as well. So it needs to be eradicated so that you can be peaceful and calm, serene and content with joy no matter what's going on around you. And that's a gradual process of training the mind in meditation to cultivate this loving kindness, but then to also practice it in daily life and practicing it with individual people. So if you feel in daily life that there's somebody that you're interacting with, that you feel that there's a bit of a wall or you feel that kind of hostility or irritation, annoyance or dislike starting to arise, you need to recognize it for what it is, which is coming from you. Remember, all of these teachings and this path to enlightenment starts with right view, which is accepting responsibility for your own feelings, your emotions, understanding that you cause your own discontentedness. Therefore, you can eliminate it. So when you feel the arising irritation, annoyance, dislike, or even if it's stronger, like hatred, anger, and ill will, you need to recognize that for what it is, is that's coming from you in your mind. And even if somebody's talking in a way that's displeasing to you, or even if it's rude or impolite, sure, they shouldn't be speaking rude and impolite. That's their practice, and they're experiencing the results of being rude and impolite and disrespectful to people. But when you allow your mind to become discontent because the mind craves or desires or has this strong eagerness for everyone to speak polite, kind, and respectful, then you're going to cause yourself discontentedness. Because remember, the Buddhist teachings aren't necessarily about what's right or wrong, right it's, it's right for other people to speak polite kind and respectful it's right for us to do the same thing but we're never going to be in a situation during our lifetime where everyone in the world speaks polite kind and respectful so if every time somebody speaks in a way that's displeasing to you if you allow your mind to become discontent then those people are shaking up your mind because you are allowing your mind to become discontent based on other people's speech and actions. So yes, you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but you also need to eliminate this hatred, anger, ill will, where you're pushing people away because of your irritation, your annoyance, and your dislike with certain things that other people do or say, or certain situations that you find yourself in. And the way to eradicate This hatred, anger, ill will is by practicing loving kindness meditation and then practicing loving kindness in daily life where you're treating all beings with active goodwill without judging them. So if you see somebody who's speaking disrespectfully or angrily or impolitely, don't judge them for that. Identify it for what it is, which is they aren't using the five factors of well-spoken speech. They're not practicing right speech. So they obviously haven't come across these teachings in a way that their practice has developed. So don't judge them for that. Don't look down on them. Don't be arrogant or egotistical because of that. Don't be angered or have hatred or irritation or annoyance because of that. Just recognize it for what it is and don't allow your mind to become discontent and be kind and peaceful and calm when you're around them because that's gonna be beneficial for you. In those situations, if you respond back with hatred, anger, ill will, now it's affecting you. Whereas if that person is just impolite or disrespectful on their own and you maintain your practice of the Eightfold Path, right view all the way through to the right concentration, if you maintain your practice you're not generating any unwholesome results because you're practicing right view, which is you're accepting responsibility for your feelings and emotions. You're not allowing your mind to be shaken up by this. You're practicing right intention, which is harmlessness. Just because they're speaking harsh, aggressive, and disrespectful doesn't mean you need to do the same thing. You're not harming with your speech or your actions or anything else as part of your practice in that situation so don't allow your mind to become unraveled and start to cause harm because now by causing harm to others you're going to be causing harm to yourself so this is one that we've already talked about pretty closely but i would like to pause and see if there's any questions on this particular brahma vahara what it actually remedies and how to cultivate loving kindness as part of your practice
2: Hi, David. I think we're good at
1: this moment. Okay. The second Brahma Vihara is called compassion. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. This essentially remedies the unwholesome quality of being indifferent. Or worry or anxiety because if you have worry or anxiety you're gonna see all these problems you're gonna see all this misfortune of others and you might worry and have anxiety about your family your friends maybe even strangers if you see people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol or you see homeless people or you see people who are sick or ill with COVID or any other particular illness in the world, cancer, HIV, or any of these other things, your mind may either be indifferent and just, I don't care, right? That's one problem. But then on the other side, it might worry and have anxiety. That's on two sides of the spectrum. So remember that these teachings are about bringing the mind to the middle. So rather than being indifferent and not caring about misfortune of others or not having worry and anxiety, which means the mind's going to be discontent. The middle here is to practice compassion, which is concern for their misfortune because a worried mind sees all the problems, but a concerned mind sees the problems, but it also knows the solution. And the solution to pretty much all these problems that we see around us Whether it's drug and alcohol abuse, whether it's homelessness and poverty and famine, or all of these other problems that we see in the world, the solution is for the entire world to attain enlightenment through learning and practicing these teachings. Because if the entire world practiced these teachings, we wouldn't have these problems that exist in the world today but that's going to be a slow generational thing that happens over multiple generations. So rather than worry and have anxiety about all these problems in the world, or rather than being indifferent and just thinking like, ah, whatever, it doesn't bother me, it doesn't affect me, whatever, you need to bring the mind to the middle where there's concern for the misfortune of others. And this is cultivated through having right mindfulness and applying right effort. Remember, right mindfulness is awareness of mind. So if you have awareness of mind, then you can identify the unwholesome qualities of either indifference or worry and anxiety arising in the mind. And with that awareness of mind or right mindfulness, then when you see that indifference and you see the worry and anxiety, you apply right effort. Right effort is all about eliminating the unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities. So wherever you identify with mindfulness, awareness of mind, that these unwholesome qualities of indifference, worry, or anxiety arises over certain situations or certain experiences, then you take the effort to eliminate that indifference or eliminate the worry or eliminate the anxiety, and now arise this concern for the misfortune of others. And this is all happening in the mind. This is part of the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. Right effort is step six, and right mindfulness is step seven of the Eightfold Path. So you're going to be able to apply this in the moment when you're noticing these feelings arise. There is no meditation for the rest of these Brahma viharas You just need to take the effort, through right effort, and these other aspects, of course, having right mindfulness, awareness of mind, to actually eliminate the unwholesome quality and arise the wholesome quality in order for this to come and permeate into the mind. It's not going to happen right away on the first situation. It may not happen on the 10th. Or 20th or 100th situation but this is how you do it and doing loving kindness meditation does kind of lend itself to compassion it helps it move towards compassion by the way i don't know if you guys can hear what's going on behind me right now is a holiday in thailand and there's fireworks and lots of things going on don't think that i'm in the middle of a gun battle or anything like that but there's lots of fireworks going off in and around me right now so don't be worried or have anxiety you can have concern if you like but you don't actually even need to be concerned because it's just fireworks it's not a gun battle okay so compassion is this concern for the misfortune of others right and being concerned about unfortunate things that happen to others. Now, you guys probably remember us talking about the natural law of karma, of cause and effect, or action and result. Anybody who's experiencing misfortune, it's because of their own decisions, either in this life or in previous lives. So if people are in poverty or famine, this is based on the decisions that they've made. Or if somebody is experiencing any kind of harm to the physical body or situations in their life that are unfortunate, this is based on their own decisions. But even though these beings have met with this misfortune based on their own decisions, we don't want to turn a blind eye to it and be indifferent. Because if we're uncaring or indifferent to this misfortune of others, then we're not doing what we can do to help lift up other beings in the world. Because even though they've made some unfortunate decisions that have led them on the path wherever they are in life, we can still extend a hand, we can still help, we can still do things in the world to help these beings elevate and improve the condition of their life through us practicing these teachings. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is generosity, because Generosity is one of the things that we can do in order to help the misfortune of others, whether it's our time, effort, energy, or resources. As we see people who are experiencing misfortune, rather than being indifferent to it and kind of being uncaring, or rather than worrying or having anxiety, we can actually spend our time, effort, energy, and resources to help these beings step up and Accomplish more in life. Because for example, if we take some population that's experiencing famine or poverty or things like this, sure, it was their decisions that led into that, either in their past life or this life. But we can actually help them because usually people who are in poverty or famine are so busy on a day-to-day basis, just trying to survive. They're just trying to get enough food, enough water, enough shelter, enough clothing, enough medical supplies just to survive. They're very much just attending to their survival. And this is based on their misfortune and their decisions. But rather than being indifferent about that and not caring, or rather than worrying or having anxiety over these beings in the world that are suffering and having concerns and having misfortune we can practice this loving kindness or active goodwill towards other beings and we can have this concern for misfortune and we can spend our time our effort our energy and our resources to help them and there's all different kinds of ways of doing this if any of you guys are friends with bill and his facebook you see some of the pictures of him recently helping here in thailand and some children's eye clinics where he's donating his time and effort to facilitate eye tests, to help them to experience better sight through testing their eyes. And I'm sure you guys are involved in certain things like this too. So if you guys look in your community of people who need help or even outside of your community that need help, you can reach out and extend a hand to practice loving kindness, which is active goodwill, but also bring this mind to the middle where you have concern for the misfortune of others, where you're not just in a non-caring situation, but you're also not worrying with anxiety either. And you've always gotta find that middle because you've gotta spend time, effort, energy, and resources to sustain your life and to help the people around you as well. So you have to find where that middle is and it's usually kinda fluctuating any particular time, you know, during certain period of months, you may be able to spend a lot of time helping others. Maybe in other times you need to spend time helping yourself or those close to you. And only you know where that middle is. And that's why in this practice, there is no judgment. There's nobody saying that, okay, you should spend 10 hours a week helping other people. You know, that's kind of like an arbitrary thing. You know, there's Nothing in this practice that kind of forces you or put expectations on you of what you should or shouldn't do at any given time. But in general, you should be cultivating this concern for others' misfortune and looking for ways to help if you can, when you can. And you may not be able to do that right now. Right now, maybe all you can do is spend time helping yourself to ensure you have food, water, shelter, clothing, and medical supplies. And that might be where you're at right now. And that's fine because that's showing concern for your misfortune and maybe your life partner and your children or people that are somewhat close to you. But then as you develop more and more ability to help yourself and that becomes more and more fluid, then you might choose at some point, if you like, to look in other places where you might be able to help as well. But that's completely your decision, if or when you ever decide to do that kind of thing. But that's what we mean by practicing. When we talk about learning and practicing the teachings, it requires you to learn intellectually like you're doing in this class, through the book, through the podcast, through everything else that I provide you in terms of resources. But then you need to go out into the community and practice. You need to apply these teachings with your family, your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, people in your community, people outside your community. That's what it means to practice the teachings. Okay, so let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on compassion.
2: So I'd like to clarify something you said there, David, about misfortune. So understanding is that while sometimes we hear the word fortune, we think about luck who being lucky or unlucky. Mm. But of course, it seems that luck is not a factor here. Everything we experience is the results of our own decisions. So is that correct? And a follow-up question would be, given that, we can still show compassion by helping others by providing the conditions for them to essentially help themselves and make good, wholesome decisions that benefit themselves. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. Everything that we experience, everything that's part of our life right now, if we have polite people that treat us well, treat us respectful, treat us kind around us, that's based on our decisions. If we have people that treat us with disrespect, disregard, impolite around us, that's because of our decisions. If we are in situations where we're being physically abused, we're choosing to stay in that situation. So even though these situations happen, and some people feel like they're stuck in certain situations, they're choosing to be in that situation, and they can choose to leave. But oftentimes, based on the way the mind works, because it tends to hold on, it's oftentimes hard to get out of these situations. Like if somebody's involved in a physical abusive relationship or a verbally abusive relationship, it's oftentimes hard for that person to leave because of the way the unenlightened mind holds on and it craves permanence. Or if someone's in poverty, it's very, very difficult to get out of poverty. Extremely difficult because you're so busy just trying to sustain your basic needs to sustain life, you don't even have time to focus on learning some new skills or learning some new uh, way of getting a new job or even getting a job at all. In some cases, you're just so busy attending to your basic needs. And sometimes famine and disease can inhibit a group of people into poverty so much, so deeply that their physical body is unwell that they aren't even able to go to anywhere to learn and cultivate new skills to get a new job. So in these situations, these beings, while they're human, they're having a really difficult and hard time at life. And rather than just turn a blind eye to it, or rather than having worry and anxiety, what this mental state in the Brahma Viharas of compassion is all about, is maintaining concern for the situation that these beings are in. And then if we choose, what we talk about generosity, is to take action to actually help these beings. Because through helping them, we're helping our mother, our brother, our father, our sister, our relatives because these people in the world, every single being that exists in the world has previously been our family member at some point in our past lives. So we should look for ways where we can to help others and help to elevate humanity through helping one person at a time or three people or a group of people, however many we'd like, and that will improve the condition for them. But... Whether they actually improve or not, it's their decision, right? We can't force people. We shouldn't even attempt to force people because they need to make better and better decisions and wiser and wiser decisions to come out of the hardships that they're experiencing. But in certain situations like what I'm describing of poverty, famine, disease, sometimes it's just a matter of providing food, shelter, water, clothing, things like this. And that's what those people need. And then once that gets nice and stable, then it's like, okay, well, how can we provide education to help them learn new skills, which is ultimately going to fix the problem long-term? Because what we wouldn't want to have happen is be in a situation where we're just providing food, water, shelter, and all of these supplies all the time. And the person becomes dependent But we have to kind of break up the logjam somehow. So by providing this health-sustaining and life-sustaining supplies to help them so they're not having to worry so much themselves about sustaining their own life, now once they're stable on the life-sustaining supplies that they need, now then we can start looking at bringing in education and helping them to become self-sustaining where they can now get better jobs and things like this. It's going to take the whole world coming together in order for these kind of things to happen. But we can't wait for the whole world to get on board with this. There's little things that we can do in our capacity as individuals in order to improve the world. And I just gave that one example because it's fresh in my mind about Bill, how him and some of his friends are going out into the community and helping in various ways. And we can all do this. We don't have to wait for one leader of one country to pull together some big program and everybody jump in together. We can find little ways to help here and there as we can. And you guys all know certain things that you're interested in helping, certain communities of people that could use your help, certain ways that you're able to help. And that's going to improve your practice of these teachings and it's going to improve the condition of your
2: mind. Yes, I certainly see how those who have the means helping others to benefit their own lives and practice is just going to help everybody. I think where this isn't so intuitive for everybody is say, what about those that are just born into poverty and it seems like almost from day zero they have no option to get themselves out unless someone else comes in and provides them with that opportunity. So I think for a lot of adults, we can maybe see right view in action. We can see how a typical adult in a developed world is generally bearing the results of the decisions they've made in this land of opportunity. But then we look at developing worlds and the most poverty-stricken families within those. What can you suggest to help those perhaps on this path to see how this also applies in those situations?
1: Yeah, so where we're born in terms of where we're born physically in the world and what parents we're born to and what conditions we're born into, it's all based on our decisions in our previous lives. So any child that's born into poverty, for example, or famine, or even if someone's born with physical disabilities and things like this, this is all based on our previous decisions and previous lives that we're born into, the situations that we're born into. So all of you that are listening to this right now, whether it's on Facebook, YouTube, our podcast, or in our online classes right now, we are all in a situation in this world where we have the life-sustaining supplies that we need. We have food, water, clothing, shelter, medical supplies. We have access to the internet. We have computers and electronic devices. And yes, this is all based on our decisions that we made in our previous lives as well as this life as well. But there's plenty of beings in the world that don't have these things that we might consider basic. A phone or a computer, for a lot of people in the world, these are like so far out of their reach. That they would never even be able to acquire a laptop computer or a mobile phone to even get a chance to even see some kind of teachings about the buddha or any other kind of education that would improve their life they don't have the opportunity to learn and gain skills and things like this because they're just busy day to day you know they might be eating a bowl of rice once every week or once every two weeks or something like this Very, very poverty stricken. There's a statistic that I've seen that says 9.5 million people in the world die of hunger every year. 9.5 million people die of hunger. You know, let that set in for a while because I think we're up to somewhere around a million people that have died in COVID right now. In the world's just kind of, you know, up in arms about that. And yeah, we need to fix that. That's a problem in the world, and people are working on that. But every single year, there's 9.5 million people that die of hunger that shouldn't have to die of hunger. This planet can support these people if we all found ways to help. And it's not going to be David doing all the work, or Max, or Bill, or James, or Judith, or Javier, anyone else, any of us doing one particular thing. It's all of the world working together to find ways. And it's not going to be one person comes up with a plan that addresses all the world's problems. It's got to be individuals working in their own capacity based on their own interests and their own observations of where they can help. But these people who don't have access to the things that you and I have access to, we need to show concern for them, even though their life is as a result of their own decisions. If we're going to cultivate this loving kindness and compassion for all beings without judgment, not judging these people for the decisions that they've made, But having this active goodwill towards all beings and having this concern for their misfortune and helping to lift beings up in the world is only going to benefit all of us. It's going to benefit everyone by doing that. We don't accomplish anything by a select few people holding wealth and letting a large majority of people die of hunger. That doesn't help the world. That just precipitates the problem of this craving, anger, and ignorance continuing in the world. And what we need to do as part of our community and learning these teachings and being practitioners who are on the path to enlightenment is be an example for the world of what can be, of the way that we can be loving and kind and compassionate human beings, and not just talk about it in a class like this, but actually practice it in day-to-day life so people can see that the role model of what these teachings look like being practiced in daily life.
2: Thank you for that, David. We do have a couple more questions, but I think they might be better positions at the end of class.
1: Okay, so let's go to the next two Brahma Viharas. then. The next two, this first one is called sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is the feeling of joy for other's success, even if you didn't contribute to it. This essentially remedies the unwholesome quality of jealousy. If you find yourself jealous of someone else's success or when someone else is doing good or you see somebody have a nice car, nice clothes, nice job, nice house, nice boyfriend, girlfriend, nice children, or anything that you look at and you feel jealous about, this is because you don't have sympathetic joy and you need to cultivate this in the mind to eliminate jealousy because jealousy is discontentedness as long as the mind is experiencing jealousy the mind's not going to be enlightened because it's longing and craving for something that other people have and you're feeling jealous that they actually have something that you don't have or they've accomplished something that you haven't accomplished or you wish you could accomplish so sympathetic joy is a feeling of joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So the way to cultivate this is the same as what we talked about with compassion. There's no meditation. There's no pill. There's no magic chant or mantra or any of these other things that are going to cultivate these last three Brahma viharas. Sympathetic joy needs to be cultivated through, once again, having right mindfulness or awareness of mind. Identify the unwholesome quality of jealousy when it arises in the mind. When you see that jealousy arise, even if it's just completely small and minute, when you have awareness of mind and you're being honest with yourself that you are experiencing jealousy in any given situation then you need to apply right effort to eliminate that unwholesome quality of jealousy and then arise this sympathetic joy, which is the feeling of joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So if you're in a business meeting or you're in a situation where somebody's being acknowledged for their good work or for certain things that they've accomplished and you feel that kind of ickiness of jealousy, and you just kind of like wish it was you and not them, you've got to identify that with mindfulness, awareness of mind. Identify that that's your mind feeling that. That person hasn't done anything wrong. They've done something that they're being acknowledged by their peers or people in the community for something that they've done that doesn't mean what you're doing is any better or any less it just means that they happen to be the ones who are being acknowledged at this particular time so rather than be discontent with jealousy and sit there and be kind of envious of what's transpiring you've got to recognize your jealousy with mindfulness and then cultivate this feeling of joy when someone else is successful, even if you didn't contribute to it. So wish them well. Congratulations. Great. I'm really glad to see that this person is doing something great and wonderful, either at work or in our community, or they got a nice car or a nice job. Wonderful. I'm so pleased for you, right? This is how you have to break through that wall. But you've got to identify that the jealousy and envy is coming from you. If you don't have right view and you say, oh, look at Barbara, she thinks she's so great. She's getting her 10 year award at work. I've been here nine and a half years. You know, why didn't I get my award today? You know, I'm close enough. I should be getting my award too, right? You've gotta identify that Barbara didn't do anything wrong. She's just getting acknowledged for her good effort and her tenure at work. So eliminate your jealousy by being pleased for Barbara's success, and that she's contributed 10 years of her life to this company and has benefited people in this company, both the coworkers and the customers. So you've gotta identify where this jealousy is coming from. It's not from the other person. Other people who are doing good things in the world and are experiencing success, they haven't done anything wrong to you. It's just that your mind craves that acknowledgement. Your mind is craving that same shining light, that same acknowledgement from other people for the work that you've done. And because you're craving that attention, your mind becomes jealous. That's the discontentedness. That jealousy is the discontentedness, but it's coming from the craving to be acknowledged or the craving to have that same success. And that's what's producing the jealousy. So yes, you've got to eliminate that craving, desire, attachment for always having success and acknowledgement, but you can remedy that through practicing sympathetic joy when you see this jealousy arise. So eliminate that jealousy and envy and arise this sympathetic joy where you feel joyful for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. Any questions here?
2: Yes, I have a question, David. So I see how cultivating wholesome intentions will then lead to us performing wholesome speech and actions. Can it also work in the other way? So even if we're not feeling sympathetic joy or we're not feeling compassionate, can we act in a compassionate way or say something compassionate as a way to cultivate compassionate thoughts?
1: Yes. In fact, this might be a way that you choose to practice because the mind itself might be feeling jealous and envious and you see that with mindfulness and awareness of mind and you identify it and you're doing your very best during this 45 minute or hour event where barbara's getting recognized and you're trying to kick out that jealousy but it's just not going anywhere well if you sit there and wait for that jealousy to get out before you actually practice sympathetic joy you might be there for a really long time and it may not ever get out for that particular event so one of the things that max is sharing is one of the ways to practice this is just put the words together even though inside the mind is struggling and fighting with itself and there's all this jealousy and envy in there just smile and tell Barbara, congratulations i'm really pleased for you This is wonderful that you've accomplished this goal. I'm very pleased for your success. You can use these same words. I feel joy for your success. You can tell them this. And even though the mind doesn't feel it and it's not permeating from the mind, by you doing the actions and you doing the speech, it's going to soak in more and more to your thoughts or your intentions so that you can then slowly cultivate this in the mind. So oftentimes the words have to come first to break through that wall and break up that log jam before the mind can actually start experiencing it on a more readily basis. And it can be almost untapped, where as soon as you see someone be successful, wow, you feel really joyful for them.
2: So in effect, what we're doing, we're using these cultivating wholesome mental states to eliminate unwholesome defilements from the mind so by expressing sympathetic joy even if we're not feeling it yet we're actually compensating for something that's defiling the mind bringing it back to the middle because we know that if we're not feeling sympathetic joy that's our defilement that's not right view we know that if we're experiencing discontent mind states is because of our own attachment so i I was thinking to ask david why is it that we don't just focus on abandoning unwholesome mind states or why why bother cultivating wholesome mind states if the problems in the mind are defilements, if they're essentially clouding the mind's true nature it sounds like we're using them as a way to compensate have i got that about right
1: Um, It's not compensating. What it's doing is it's filling that void. Right. So what I say here is I say we eliminate the unwholesome quality and arise the wholesome quality. It may make it sound like you have to first get rid of the unwholesome quality before you can bring in the wholesome quality. But in reality, what you're doing is you're kind of doing this movement where by bringing in the wholesome quality, you're extinguishing and eliminating the unwholesome quality. So it's almost like pushing the unwholesome quality out of the way. You know, in certain situations, all you can do is just sit there and smile when Barbara's getting her award. And you can't even bring yourself to say anything because you're so torn up inside. You felt like you should have been the president or you should have been the leader of the team, but yet everybody picked Barbara instead of you. And you might be feeling very discontent. And all you can do is just sit there and smile right? Because you're feeling this jealousy and envy. Well, that's better than being aggressive and angry to Barbara and saying, you know, why'd you guys pick her? Like, you know, she's not doing as good a job as me. Why is she the one who's going to be the leader of the team, right? Like that would start producing unwholesome results for you. So in certain situations, all you might be able to do is just sit there and smile and that's it, right? But in other situations, if you can bring yourself to congratulating or saying other good words, that can start to bring that sympathetic joy into the mind slowly, chip away at this slowly, which is going to move out this jealousy out of the mind. And as you do this, it'll become more of first nature, where now your first nature might be to get jealous in any given situation. And that's what the mind's been doing because it's untrained. It hasn't been trained otherwise. But now, since you're taking training and you're undergoing training, what you need to do is actively bring in this wholesome quality of sympathetic joy to help start moving out this unwholesome quality of jealousy or envy.
2: Right. Yeah. Thank you. That makes more sense now. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have a follow up from Mercia. She asks, I've heard the term fake it till you make it. Is it OK to do this?
1: I think so. Because you know, in terms of what's going on, if you can put together kind words, a smile, some polite actions, a handshake, a why, whatever it is in your culture to acknowledge and congratulate people for their success, even inside if you're really torn up about it. Now, even inside if you're torn up about it, some of that might be coming through in your handshake or in your words, and I'm sure some of it probably is coming through, but if you can try to arise as much of these Brahma Viharas, since we're talking about sympathetic joy, this sympathetic joy here, but any of these Brahma Viharas, as much as you can arise in a given situation, then what you'll see is the mind will have a tendency to arise that much easier in future situations. So if you guys remember like at fairs where you take a hammer and you... Hit it and the bell goes up and it kind of hits a certain level. Well, if you bring the sympathetic joy up to a certain level, even if you're faking it, the next situation that you're like that, you'll have an easier tendency to bring it up to that same level or beyond in the next situation. So if you need to fake it, go ahead and fake it and just keep working on permeating that in the mind. And that's what it means to gradually move in that direction and smile and be polite with your words and your actions. There's nothing wrong with that because you're practicing. You're not perfect. A Buddha is fully, perfectly enlightened. They've already accomplished this on their own without the help of anyone else. But for you, you're practicing. You're not a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. So yeah, if you need to Fake it, fake it meaning inside the mind still has jealousy and envy, but your words and your actions are trying to show as much joy for this other person's success as possible. The more you do that with your speech and your actions, it will start to slowly take over the mind and it'll start permeating in the mind and become easier and first nature for you in the future.
2: Thanks, David. And this relates somewhat to my question as well, because by faking it, we mean we're only doing it because we know it's wholesome right we're not doing it for any expectation or to produce any kind of result or to get what we want yes we're doing it because we we know it's in line with true reality in other words it's wholesome and the discontent states we're feeling are not and they're based on our own attachment so by performing in such a way that we're speaking and behaving with these wholesome qualities we're pushing out the unwholesome qualities of mind
1: Right. Because this unenlightened mind is kind of stuck in the darkness. Right. And, and that's what we mean by the mind is sleeping or, you know, it's unenlightened. It's stuck in the darkness and it's kind of mired in the mud. And what you're doing is you're kind of lifting up the mind with these teachings and you're trying to kind of move it in the direction of enlightenment you're trying to get it closer and closer to enlightenment through your practice of learning and practicing the teachings and this is why when the buddha spoke oftentimes he would say a wise person would do this or a wise person does this he was always explaining what is an enlightened being doing and what an enlightened being is gonna do is have loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic, joy, and equanimity. And here's where that looks like and here's what it looks like in practice, but your mind's not there yet. So you're trying to move it and propel it in that direction. And as you say, Max, you don't wanna do it for malicious reasons. You don't wanna do it to try to acquire what you want. You're not trying to do it kind of backhandedly. So in terms of faking it, You're essentially just trying to move the mind in that direction. And the closer and closer you move it in the direction of enlightenment, it'll have more and more of a tendency to practice in that way and be conducting itself in that way.
2: Okay. We have no more questions at the moment.
1: Okay. So let's talk about equanimity. Equanimity is a really interesting one and is somewhat different than the ones we've been talking about so far equanimity has kind of two components to it. One is this mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. So this is any given situation, the mind is just going to be calm, peaceful, right? When I talk about enlightenment, I talk about peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, right? So this is the equanimity. That mental calmness, the composure, the evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. So if you get a phone call from the school that something's gone on with your children and something wrong has happened or something bad's happened, maintaining your mental calmness and your composure, your evenness of temper, because getting your mind all shaken up about any particular situation isn't going to help the situation right? If somebody's getting angry at you or you get bad news or you hear that somebody's passed away or your child has fallen down and hurt themselves or you've fallen down and hurting yourself or you found out that you lost your job or some other situation that's difficult, you need to identify that there's no benefit in allowing the mind to become discontent. There's absolutely no benefit of becoming angry Frustrated, irritated, annoyed, or any of these other discontent feelings is just going to make the matter worse because, in this difficult situation, now you're trying to make good, rational decisions, but your mind is discontent. So, by maintaining the mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, now you're going to be able to apply the most wisdom. To make the best, most rational decisions to improve the situation. Because just like we know that goodness and all these wonderful things in life are impermanent, any difficult situation you're in is impermanent as well. And the way to make that more and more impermanent and as impermanent as possible is to make good, rational decisions to bring that situation out of this difficult situation into something better well discontentedness isn't going to allow you to bring this difficult situation into something better so the best choice for a mind that is well trained is to maintain the mental calmness composure and evenness of temper so that when you're in those difficult situations you can start applying wisdom with good decision making to bring that decision from being difficult into something better. Because it that difficult situation is impermanent. We know that. But if the mind doesn't understand impermanence and it looks at this difficult situation as, oh my goodness, you know, I've lost my job, you know, everything's gonna come crumbling down now, or oh my son fell down and hit his head, and now he's gonna have a concussion, and you know, you just start thinking the worst right? You start worrying, you start being anxious, having anxiety, you start having all these discontent feelings. Those are all just going to get in the way of good rational decision making that brings the situation to something better. So you need to maintain this mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper in difficult situations. This will help to remedy the unwholesome quality of worry, anxiety, and overactive mind. Then the other part of equanimity is treating everyone impartially, treating everyone equally in terms of the president of your country versus the person who collects trash out in your neighborhood. These people are the same. Treat them equally, impartially, right? Don't put yourself above others and below others. Because if you put yourself above and below others, your mind is going to be discontent because if you put yourself above people and you look down on them with arrogance, this is going to create difficulty and struggles in your relationships. But likewise, if you put yourself below somebody and you look at them as being so much higher than you, when you're around them, you're not going to have mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper. You're going to be apprehensive. You're going to be uncalm. You're going to be shy. You're going to be anxious when you're around them because you're looking up to them with such power and such might as they're so far above you. So by you training the mind to look at everyone equally, then you can ebb and flow and be around anybody. If you're with the president of your country or you're with a person who collects trash on the street, you treat them all the same. You don't have to treat the president of your country one way, highly respectful, super polite, because you look at them as being so far and high above you, and then looking at someone who collects trash, looking down to them as if they've got a really low-level job, and now you're disrespectful and impolite to them. Well, if you're going to even out your mind and you're going to practice this permanent mental state of enlightenment... You don't treat one group of people one way and another group of people another way because now your mind's flipping back and forth and you're having to figure out who is who and who do you treat one way and who do you treat another way. This is not what an enlightened mind does because an enlightened mind has attained and is experiencing this permanent mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And one of the reasons why is you don't have to try to figure out who's who And who do I treat one way versus who do I treat another way? You just treat everybody the same, whether they're a child, whether they're an adult, whether they have one role in society or another role in society. What's the problem that we're encountering in the world is that people do classify each other and people do have a certain social structure and they look at certain job positions, certain amount of wealth as someone being higher or lower than another person. And because of this, when you're around people, you're either looking up to them and feeling anxious and worried, or you're looking down to people and you are treating them with arrogance and ego. So by treating everyone equally, then your practice of the Eightfold Path, it's the same. Regardless of who you're around and who you're with, your mind is permanently practicing the entire Eightfold Path exactly the same, no matter who you're with and what you're doing. By treating people impartially, it will help to eradicate arrogance and ego, which is part of the higher fetters when we talked about the 10 fetters. And this relates to conceit. When you look at the 10 fetters in chapter three, this is one of the fetters that need to be eradicated from the mind in order to attain enlightenment. And one of the ways you do that is by practicing equanimity where your mind is calm, composed, evenness of temper, and especially in difficult situations, and you treat everyone equally, impartially. And once again, the way that you cultivate this in the mind is with right mindfulness and right effort. So you've gotta be aware when worry and anxiety come to the mind in a difficult situation, or you're overthinking something, you need to identify that, that that's not equanimity. And you need to bring that mind to the middle with right effort. So you need to bring in the calmness, the composure, the evenness of temper. Or if you notice that you're putting yourself above people with arrogance and ego, or you're putting yourself below people, looking up to people, then you need to recognize that for what it is, which is you not treating people impartially, and you need to apply effort to eradicate these unwholesome qualities and arise the wholesome quality of equanimity.
2: I'm interested to know, David, what kinds of situations would you consider to be an emergency, if any, and how would you respond in those kinds of situations?
1: I can tell you an example that happened about a year ago. There were some students with me, and we went to the mall, and my son was rollerblading in Thailand. They have rollerblade centers inside the malls and my son didn't have a helmet. And I was off talking to one of the students, helping them. And some of the other students were rollerblading with my son. And they came over to me. They said, your son just fell down. And I said, oh, okay. And I just kind of talked a little bit more. They said, I think you should come right now because he hit the ground pretty hard and he hasn't gotten up and he's been down for a while. And I said, oh, okay. And then I got up, and I walked over there calmly, and I saw him on the ground, and I said, Bailan, what are you doing? Did you fall? And he said, yeah, Daddy, I can't get up. My head really, really hurts. And he just started smiling a little bit. And I said, okay, well, you know, we started talking about it and stuff, and I said, you know, I think next time you should definitely wear your helmet. What do you think? He said, yeah. So we started talking about it a little bit, and then as we went the students were commenting they were like wow if that would have happened to my child i would have like jumped up right away ran over there i would have been so upset and really worried about what was going on with them and i just listened to it i didn't even think about what i was doing it was it just happened because you once you cultivate these qualities in the mind you don't really have to actively work to do it it just happens naturally because it's first nature and then we got in the car and we drove home and I was taking them to their house here in Chiang Mai. And they said to me, they said, you know, I really think you should be looking at your son because you didn't see him fall down, but he fell down awfully hard. And I said, OK, you know, I'll take a look at it and make sure we keep an eye on him. Well, it wasn't more than a couple of minutes that we had dropped them off and he started vomiting in the car and he was vomiting all over the floorboards of the car, which I knew that that's a concussion if that happens. So rather than getting all upset and, oh, my God, oh, my God, he's vomiting everywhere and my son, you know, the sky's falling kind of thing, I was just, oh, okay, he's vomiting. And I just turned the car around and just went right to the hospital, which was maybe two minutes away from where we were at that point. And then on the way, I made a quick call to my wife and let her know what was going on and said, hey, we're not going to be home. We're going to the hospital. He fell, hit his head. Looks like he might have a concussion. So Then we calmly went into the hospital, took his blood pressure, did a CAT scan, all these things. So by maintaining your composure, then when we took him into the hospital, the nurses were composed, the doctors were composed. When you go into a hospital in Thailand, it's one of the most peaceful places, I think, in all of Thailand. I've been in emergency hospitals and other places where it's just like, oh my goodness, everybody's running back and forth and you know, there's just all kinds of uh, activity going on and everybody's running here, there and everywhere. Um, But here in Thailand, you don't see that. And of course, people are concerned. Of course, people want to take care of these medical problems that exist with people that have medical problems. But Thai people have learned that being anxious or worried or overactive mind isn't going to allow the mind to function with great wisdom to take care of the problem in that given situation i observed another situation about two years ago where we walked across the main street in front of our village to go to a market and this is a big two or three lane highway with lots of big trucks going back and forth and we were coming back the police had blocked off the street there was two or three motorbikes and there was like two or three or four people like littered all over the street like passed out unconscious and one person looked like they may have broken their neck or pretty close to it. Well, the police were just calmly keeping the traffic down. The bystanders were just around kind of observing what was going on. The ambulances were pulling in one by one, getting out and just calmly walking over. I mean, they weren't like lackadaisical about it, but they had a certain calmness and composure to them that they weren't just bolting out of their ambulance, grabbing the you know bag and just running, 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 running. Oh my God, what's going on? Throw them on this, do this, do this. They were just maintaining their composure. And what I observed is that because of that, it appeared that the patients were getting much better care because the ambulance drivers who showed up were composed. They were able to think through what's the best way to help this person. And they were able to calmly treat the person. And then when people started to slowly regain consciousness, like one or two of them regain consciousness, they didn't have all this hectic stuff going on around them that they were able to just slowly kind of come back and regain their consciousness and their own mental composure. So this equanimity will create experiences, not just in medical situations like I'm describing now, but let's just say you're in a meeting with your boss and your boss is bringing up an issue that some coworker or some customer complained about your work. Well, rather than get all up in arms about it and and angry and discontent, by maintaining your calmness, your composure, and your evenness of temper, you can ask some really poignant questions, you can get feedback, you can understand what the real problem is here, and maybe you did do something wrong and you need to address that. And by keeping a calm mind, your boss will see, wow, this person took this feedback really well. I feel comfortable that my employee had some problems. I was able to sit down with them, talk with them calmly. They were able to take in the feedback calmly, ask some questions, and I feel like that employee is gonna do some work with that feedback and improve. And now your gamma is such that your boss feels better and better about you and that you're going to get the job done. Whereas if in that same situation, you became unhinged and you started becoming aggressive or hostile or rejecting what was going on and kind of pushing it away, now you're creating a situation where your boss isn't going to feel comfortable that they can sit down and talk with you and you may end up getting fired over something that you may have done by accident or something that you may not have even done. Just because you became unhinged your boss is now seeing that you can't maintain your mental calmness and composure in that difficult situation. And if you can't even talk to your boss calmly, then how can they have confidence that you're going to deal with customer interactions in a good, wholesome way as well? So this is how this mental calmness and composure can help you, not just in medical emergencies, but also in just everyday life, when you're dealing with husbands, wives, children, dealing with bosses, any kind of relationships that you're in, this discontentedness that comes along as you're in difficult situations doesn't do anything to help you. And it does just the opposite, it actually hurts you. And that's why by eliminating it and getting this mind closer to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, you're gonna have better, better results in your personal and professional relationships.
2: Thanks Though it's interesting that you should bring up equanimity with ambulance crews. I actually have an example which proves uh, what happens in the opposite scenario where they don't have equanimity and about five or six weeks ago I went to visit my mother for a week and on the first morning waking up there I get a phone call from my neighbour telling me that an ambulance crew has kicked down my door back here in Brighton whilst I'm away and something was miscommunicated, they were at the wrong address. And unfortunately, there was someone that needed their help, but because somewhere in the chain, something hadn't been communicated properly, they ended up at my flat whilst I wasn't there. So this is an example of how being too rash, too fast, too frantic, uh, can actually produce very unwholesome results when it might have been better. I don't know the details, but had they just taken care, slowed down a bit, make sure they did it right and moved at the right pace, they might've actually got to where they need to be faster.
1: Right, and think about, since we're on the topic of medical illnesses or medical conditions and situations, think about a situation where you get bit by a snake or someone you care about gets bit by a snake. If everybody starts getting unhinged, right? If this is really a poisonous snake and your heart starts beating really fast, you start breathing really fast, that poison is going to start pumping through your system a lot faster. And it's going to have a bigger impact and potentially kill you, right? So let's talk about like something really difficult like that, like getting bit by a poisonous snake. By you being unhinged and not practicing equanimity, it can cause your death, right? That's your karma, your unwholesome karma. Whereas if you practice equanimity, and your mind is calm, you're composed, okay, I got bit by a snake. Let me make some good rational decisions here. Or my loved one got bit by a snake. Let me make some good rational decisions here to get this person the care they need. By becoming unhinged, it doesn't help anything whatsoever. And that's what equanimity is all about, is to maintain that calmness so that you can make good, wise decisions in every single situation. Because an enlightened being is not going to become unhinged on anything very minor and insignificant or even something really, really, really significant and really difficult, like even potentially facing their own death if they got bit by a snake. An enlightened being has already eliminated the fear of death, so they're not even going to become discontent. They're still going to be able to maintain their equanimity even if they know or think or it appears that their death is imminent based on a poisonous snake bite.
2: We have a question from Michael. So eventually, being in an enlightened state is being able to eliminate emotional reactions?
1: Yes. You never want to react in any situation. That's what the unenlightened mind is going to want to do. It's going to want to react and react and react really quickly. But... What you need to do is train the mind to respond to any given situation, not react. Over time, as the mind becomes more and more enlightened, you will always just respond. You will always respond through that wisdom of the enlightened mind, and it will always be a good, wholesome result, where in the unenlightened mind and even leading up to enlightenment, when you're in the jhanas and you're in the first three stages of enlightenment, you're still going to be reacting in a way that produces results that are unfavorable. It's only once the mind fully attains enlightenment that it's going to be able to respond in any given situation in a wholesome way that leads to wholesome results, always. And this is why the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, because you understand in the enlightened mind that everything is as a result of your decisions absolutely everything in your life is as a result of your decisions. And you've gained so much wisdom on this path that every single decision you make leads to wholesome results. And you've just got to train your mind gradually to get to that point. So if you feel your mind wanting to react in any given situation, which it's probably going to be doing a lot, you've got to slow it down. You've got to put the brakes on. You've got to say, ho, 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 ho. One of the best things you can do in a difficult situation is just don't make any decisions at all potentially, right? Not necessarily in a snake bite situation, but if you're facing a job loss or you're facing an eviction or you're facing some difficult situation, if you can put the brakes on and don't make any decision at all and just think about it, that's better to develop a response rather than react. Because oftentimes in the unenlightened mind, the reaction is the wrong decision because you're reacting through this craving, anger, and ignorance or this greed, hatred, and delusion with the self and the ego. And the unenlightened mind is going to react through that. And these 10 fetters are in there. They're, the mind's going to react through that, which is going to pollute whatever decision that you're making. So while you're doing this transition and you're actively moving the mind to this enlightened state, you wanna kind of slow things down, think about it, reflect on the teachings, and then respond. And you may have a 100% wholesome decision or maybe not. There might be a little bit of taintedness in your decision, but at least it'll be less than when you react. And when you implement that decision, you can see what the results are And then you can kind of tweak your decisions. And this is where the Buddha talked about thinking and pondering or pondering and contemplating about your decisions. And this is what you need to do as you progress through this path is you need to intellectually learn the teachings. You need to develop your practice with meditation and practicing all these teachings on the Eightfold Path. Then when certain situations arise, contemplate, reflect, reflect ponder think about how you might choose to make this decision and then implement that decision and see how it works and then read the feedback whatever comes back that's the gamma that's the result of your decision and when you're initially doing this you might be making really slow decisions because you're trying to figure out how to work with these teachings and how to apply them in daily life but as you gain the wisdom of seeing how these teachings work and what comes back keeps coming back wholesome, now it's going to become first nature where these decisions will start to come a little bit more readily and a little bit easier. And you won't have to go through this thinking and pondering that you might be doing early in your practice. But you need to go through that period for several months or potentially years before you gain enough wisdom and see how these teachings work that then the mind experiences more and more of enlightenment where now it becomes first nature and you're making all your decisions through this wisdom of an enlightened mind rather than the defilements or the taints rather than craving anger and ignorance the self and ego rather than these 10 fetters that you're making decisions through now you're going to be making your decisions through this wisdom of an enlightened mind and it's always going to be producing wholesome results
2: we have a question from manal teacher david sometimes turning a trigger into amusement changes my reaction to something more gentler and lighthearted, but it doesn't always work do you have a few things i could focus on or an immediate mental thought i could use if there is something which triggers me i'm not heavily reactive but i'm not equanimous in these situations
1: it really depends on the situation manal each situation is different So you've got to look at the situation and you've got to decide what is the unwholesome qualities here that are arising, that are causing complications and struggles in this situation, and what are the wholesome qualities that I can arise in the mind to help me make better decisions and experience better results in this situation, because every situation is different. And that's why these different mental qualities and the entire Eightfold Path is there as a foundation in which to look at what it is that you're involved in and decide what unwholesome qualities are at bay, what's being experienced, and what wholesome qualities do you need to bring in. So if you have specific situations, you can talk about those and share those. I can help you here in class, or we can talk privately, up to you. But each situation's different.
2: We have a question from Deborah. If you were trying to guide a child not to associate with certain people because you knew they would be a bad influence, for example, drugs, etc., would that be seen as looking down on certain people?
1: No, that's not looking down. If you're making wise decisions in order to ensure that you're not involved in unwholesome experiences, that's a wise decision. If you were looking down on somebody, you would be talking down to your child about these other people and disparaging them and talking down and saying, you're better than that. You're so much better. Why do you want to hang around these losers? You know, these kind of things. But if you were using language like, you know, these drugs and alcohol aren't going to be beneficial for you. And with you being around that, it's not going to be helpful for you in your life. So it's probably best that you don't spend time in situations and around people who are involved in these things so never disparaging the other person because the people who are using drugs and alcohol we need to have loving kindness and compassion for them right because they're having addiction problems they're having challenges in their life they're part of that concern for the misfortune of others and that active goodwill towards all beings without judgment So there's no reason to disparage these people, which it doesn't sound like you're interested in doing, but you can choose to not be around that and guide your children or guide other people around you not to be around that without disparaging them and looking down and talking bad about these people. Thank you, David. We have
2: no more questions at the moment.
1: One of the things that I would like to add to what I just said is I never look at the person as being bad or good. I always look at the decisions that somebody's making. And I often use this with my son, either talking about his decisions or his friends, if he's around other people. I never say this is a good person or a bad person. I look at it as this person is making unwise decisions. Or I'll tell my son, you know, that's an unwise decision. Or I'll say that's a very wise decision. That's a very helpful decision. That's a very beneficial decision. That's a very wholesome decision, right? So I never make my son feel guilty for what he's done or what he's experiencing or the decisions that he's making. We're always talking about his decisions rather than him as a person. Or if we're talking about some friends that are maybe into some other things, we're always talking about the decisions that his friends are making, not the actual person themselves. So I separate these two things. So someone who's using drugs and alcohol, they're not a bad person. They're just are making some decisions that are unwise. And if you focus on the decisions that you are making and improve those decisions, that can also help you have more loving kindness and compassion for yourself and get rid of that negative self-talk where you don't look at yourself or other people as a bad person, but you just look at it as wow, I haven't made very good decisions in my past. Let me make better decisions now. I've always been a good person and I'm interested in being a good person. I'm just not making good decisions right now. Or my child is a good child. They're a good person. They're just not making wise decisions. So it's important that we focus on improving our decisions because that's the cause and effect or action and result And that's that gamma, that essentially the result of our decisions. So always focusing on the decisions rather than the person themselves can help to eradicate arrogance and ego because you're not putting yourself above or below because there is no self. You're just talking about the decisions that people are making around you and what type of good, wholesome decisions would lead to good, wholesome results. And then conversely the unwholesome decisions that would lead to unwholesome results so that's really key when you're talking with people and that also helps with those five factors of well-spoken speech because if you remember those five factors of well-spoken speech speak at the right time what you say is true you speak gentle beneficial with a mind of loving kindness without blame if you blame other people then people are going to feel apprehensive and they're not gonna like it. Even if they made a mistake or if it was an honest mistake or an intentional mistake, blaming other people is usually gonna result in them being aggressive and hostile back. So if you don't talk about the person, but you talk about the decisions, like in a business meeting or in a family setting or friends, if you talk about the decisions, then people won't feel like you're attacking them as a person and you'll have better results in your conversations because you're talking about the decisions of the group or the decisions of your employee or the decisions of your spouse or the decisions of your coworker or the decisions of your child. And then the person can maintain their dignity. They can maintain their self-esteem. They can maintain those things because they realize that you're not looking down on them as a person, you just maybe disagree with their decisions and you would like to kind of discuss better decision-making. That comes across much different than when you disparage the person themselves.
2: So this seems like a good place to go to a question from Amina. She asks, how can we work on practicing being content with those who are using ill speech and behavior? For example, I was racially profiled by the police, which bothered me less than the friend who told me in a harsh tone, that i could not prove that the incident was racial profiling and had no compassion for me that did unravel me my expectation and attachment was my responsibility and i meditated for both the friend and the policeman but it took a couple of days to forgive them both and move on from being discontent it was a real challenge perhaps the biggest since i began buddhism is there anything one can do right away in these tough situations when both ill behavior, and ill speech is thrust our way.
1: Yeah, so, you know, with these teachings, because it's a gradual practice, Amina, there's nothing that we can quickly do that's going to necessarily instantly resolve the discontentedness or ill will that's in our mind. So it's unfortunate that that happened to you, but since it did, it arose some awareness in the mind that you're having craving, desire, attachment there. And like I was just saying, if I was you, I would look at it as the police officer or your friend's decisions, not them as a person. And getting rid of that self, feeling attacked or feeling like this other person's required to have compassion for you, right? This expectation that other people should do certain things that's going to always hang up your mind because you're expecting the police to function in a certain way. But yet they have craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego. So they're not going to be perfect. So they're operating through that craving, anger, ignorance, self and ego. So having concern for their misfortune, like, oh, that's unfortunate. This person's, let's just say they're racist. That's unfortunate. They're racist. Mm, that's too bad. But that's not a reflection of you or who you are, or if your friend doesn't have compassion for you and concern for what just happened, that tells you something about that person's mind. And rather than coming at it with anger or being discontent, look at it for what it is and just transform that into compassion where you have concern for their misfortune. Because unfortunately, they haven't come across these teachings and they're not practicing these loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and you're not going to be in a world where every single person is always going to be practicing these teachings. But by you practicing it, it will liberate your mind from expecting that these other people are going to conduct themselves in a certain way. It doesn't mean that we don't aspire for the world to do better, right? It would be nice if there was no such thing as any police officer that was racist. It would be wonderful if every single friend that we had was always compassionate. But these kind of things don't exist right now in the world. So you've got to get to the point where your mind is practicing these teachings and you let go of this expectation that everyone is going to treat you the way that you should be treated. And sure, is it right for police officers to not be racist? Sure. Would it be wonderful if your friend was compassionate? Absolutely. So remember, these teachings aren't about what's right or wrong necessarily, because if they racially profiled you, of course, you know they're wrong. But you allowing your mind to become discontent about it isn't helping you in that situation. So you've got to see it for what it is, which is their craving, anger, ignorance, the self and their ego, and be unattached to their speech and their actions and maintain your peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And I think you know this, but the meditations you're doing were to help you, right? It wasn't to help them. They have to choose to learn and practice these teachings. There's nothing in your meditation that was going to change them, but it definitely sounds like it improved your mind, which is what you're going for. That's the goal.
2: Okay, we have no more questions at the moment.
1: Okay, so these are the Brahma Viharas. There's four of them. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. You need to be cultivating these all the time. And you need to get to the point where they're just first nature. They're just permeating in the mind. So be aware when these unwholesome qualities arise and then know what the antidote or the remedy of the wholesome quality is so that you can arise that through right effort. So if you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation to cultivate awareness of mind or right mindfulness then you should be aware when these unwholesome qualities arise and you can move in the wholesome quality. This is what it means to practice the teachings in the moment having the mental discipline and you probably aren't gonna be able to do it right away, right? If you were able to do it right away, you would be closer to enlightenment. So if it takes you several hours or days for this to work for you, then that's what it takes. And then each time this happens, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. But the idea is, is that you understand the skills that you need, you understand the Eightfold Path, you understand how to apply these things, and it's just a matter of practicing it more and more and more so that the mind has more of a likelihood and your ability becomes better and better to control the mind so that when you experience these unwholesome qualities you can move in the wholesome quality with right effort and it's going to take time okay this is one of the reasons why guatama buddha always talked about when you're walking know that you're walking when you're eating know that you're eating. When you're talking, know that you're talking. When you're sitting, know that you're sitting. And he went on, he said, when you're urinating, know that you're urinating. When you're defecating, know that you're defecating. Essentially, one thing at a time. Always one thing at a time. Your mind's only ever doing one thing at a time anyway. But it's just rapidly cycling oftentimes between different tasks that it kind of gives you the illusion that you're doing two, three, four, five, six things at a time, but you're really not. You're just encouraging the mind to cycle in rapid succession between one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. But if you're only doing one thing at a time and you're staying concentrated and you're staying focused, then that develops singleness of mind. This awareness of mind where you can just be utterly aware of whatever is arising in the mind either unwholesome or wholesome you can be utterly aware of that through right mindfulness and with that mindfulness you can move out the unwholesome and bring in the wholesome so this is why it's very important to always be doing just one thing at a time and it may feel odd to you if you're used to multitasking and doing multiple things at a time It's going to feel like your mind is slowing down and slowing down and slowing down. And it really is. You are slowing down the mind because it's no longer going to be rapidly cycling from one thing to the next. And that's a really good thing. But by doing that, each thing that you do, you're going to be making good, wise decisions because with awareness of mind, you're going to identify those unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities by applying right effort. So these are the Brahma Vaharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. There's one other mental quality that I mentioned in this chapter that's not part of the Brahmaviharas, but it's utterly important for you to learn and practice. Without this mental quality, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. So it's important that we talk about that as part of this chapter this quality of mine is called generosity. What generosity is, is showing a readiness and acting upon an interest to give more of something such as time, effort, energy, and resources than is strictly necessary. So rather than doing just good enough or slightly less than good enough, you always want to be practicing generosity, showing a readiness and acting upon a genuine interest to provide or give more than is strictly necessary. It doesn't mean you just need to pile it on and pile it on and pile it on. That's not what we're talking about here. But we're talking about the sharing and giving of time, effort, energy and resources to help help yourself and to help others and finding that middle way. Because we've talked about this in the past in terms of generosity and this unwholesome quality of craving, desire, attachment, the way the mind holds on. And we've talked a little bit about selfishness because what the unenlightened mind is going to do and what it is doing right now, if your mind's unenlightened, is it's holding on With this craving-desire attachment, it's craving permanence, it wants more and more and more and more. It doesn't want to give. It doesn't want to let go. It doesn't want to share readily and openly and live open-handedly. This is what the Buddha talked about is living open-handedly. So when you're noticing that the mind is wanting to hold on or it's wanting to be selfish, whether it's with food or with clothes or with your resources or your time, you've got to identify that with right mindfulness. Once again, you've got to identify that and you've got to see the selfishness for what it is. And you've got to see that the mind is trying to hold on to this bag of potato chips or this chocolate bar. And you've got to be freely giving and live open-handedly. And when you identify with mindfulness or awareness of mind, that the mind is holding on selfishly, then you've got to take right effort to abandon that selfishness and arise this wholesome quality of generosity. I can give you an example. Today, my son and I went out, we did a bunch of things. We stopped off at the store. We got a couple of chocolate bars for him, for me, and for my wife. And we came home and we sat on the patio outside and we were just talking and spending time. As soon as I opened up my chocolate bar, hey, you guys want a bite? You want a bite? You know, offering it to everybody and just letting go. And we all shared our chocolate with each other. And if there was a neighborhood child there or there was somebody else, we would have shared chocolate with them. One of the things I did when I went out with my son today is we went and played miniature golf. And when we went and played miniature golf, I saw on the land of this miniature golf, there's families that take care of the miniature golf course. And there was a little boy about five years old that was just kind of hanging out, looked kind of bored. And I said, hey, you want to come play mini golf with us? Like, you can come play with us. And I was going to buy for him to come play mini golf on the course with us. So he joined us for mini golf, right? Be generous. Why not? Just come on. Let's play mini golf. Let's get to know a new person. Let's be friendly. Let's spend some time together to meet a new person. So this is a way that you can practice generosity with your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources. And why I spent time with this little boy today, it was actually, to me, very enjoyable to spend time with another child because he got to spend time with my son. They got to make little friends. He got to learn how to play miniature golf. My son got to play miniature golf a little bit with another person his age. Instead of dad just hitting in all the balls and doing so well, he got to play with somebody his age. And it made the afternoon even that much more enjoyable. And then ultimately, it moved to us sharing candy bars together. So you can do these kind of little things. And I know they sound like really small and minuscule, but oftentimes it's these little things that build up to bigger and bigger things where you're able to let go in the mind and not hold on so tightly because the mind's going to want to hold on and hold on and hold on and it's you that's got to apply the effort to let go and train the mind that generosity giving and sharing is really 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 helpful for your practice and you'll see that the mind will have a tendency to let go as you practice generosity more and more, even in these little tiny situations. I brought this quote from Gotama Buddha to help you guys see how important generosity is in terms of your practice. This passage is so powerful to me when I read it. So I'll read it for you guys. Bhikkhus, remember that means students. Bhikkhus, if beings knew as I know the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would they allow the stain of selfishness to obsess them and take root in their mind. Even if it were their last morsel, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. but because, As beings do not know, as I know, the result of giving and sharing, they eat without having given, and the stain of selfishness obsesses them and takes root in their mind, right? So this unenlightened mind is going to have selfishness. We've all been selfish at some point in our life, probably multiple times, but that selfishness isn't doing anything to benefit you. People can feel it when we're being selfish. So by being generous and sharing with others through this, if you understood the results of giving and sharing and what that means for the enlightened mind, you would freely give and freely share. And remember, you've always got to find that middle and where that middle is for you. So find ways to share find ways to help people, find ways to practice this generosity. Because to me, this generosity is what really sets in motion all of these other Brahma Vaharas that we've been talking about. So with loving kindness, this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. Okay, there's a certain way of meditating and cultivating that we've talked a little bit about practicing that in daily life but when you come in with generosity and that loving kindness, it's so potent and so powerful for you and the people that are around you. Compassion, concern for others' misfortune, right? We talked about that today. This generosity is what ignites that and puts that into motion. Sympathetic joy, this success that others have in you feeling joy for that, being generous, not just with your time, effort, energy, and resources, but that effort and energy, that smile. Be generous with your smile. Be generous with your handshakes. Be generous with your respect. Be generous with your politeness. There's no reason to hold that back. Oftentimes, we are taught that you shouldn't respect someone until they earn your respect. Well, that means we have to judge them first to see if they've earned our respect. But if you're being generous and freely giving of your politeness, of your kindness, of your care and your respect, then you're not going to be looking for people to earn your respect. You're going to just respect everybody generously and have sympathetic joy where you are joyful for others' success. And then this equanimity, of having a calm temper, an even mind, a mental composure and calmness, treating all beings equally. Being generous can really help you with that because if you're being generous and kind to people, then you have nothing to worry about because you know that you're treating all beings equally, right? Just like I took my son to play mini golf today, this other little boy that was there, hey, he's my son right? Come on, let's go play mini golf together. Why not spend, I don't know, what was it, $1.50, $2.50 to have him come play mini golf with us. Why not, right? So be generous and you will see transformation in your mind through that giving and sharing, just as the Buddha says here.
2: I think the nice thing about generosity, one of the nice things you just alluded to there, David, is that it doesn't cost anything, and so it doesn't need to cost anything. And yet it's creative, it creates something good. So where you and your family are sharing chocolate bars, you could have all sat back and each ate your own chocolate bar, right? And it would have all been, the cost would have been the same. But because you shared, you created something good that didn't exist before. And so I feel like, really, all the good things that exist in this world have to at some point have come from some kind of generosity because if no one was ever generous can you imagine that and that would be a pretty difficult world wouldn't
0: it
1: yeah I, i think generosity is what really sets all of this into motion right if all of us are locked away in our houses through this covid period and we come out and emerge from our cave and we're just as vindictive or angry or aggressive or hostile with people as we were when we went into our houses during COVID, then the world hasn't really gotten any better. And what the Buddhist teachings are really doing here is encouraging all of us to be better people, to be more human and look at other people as fellow human beings, as fellow family members. And just as I am willing to share my chocolate bar with my son and my wife, be just as willing to share it with other people as well. And treating all people equally whether it's my son, so to speak, or whether it's some other child, being generous. And as I mentioned, it can be with a smile. It can be with a handshake. It can be with a, how are you doing today? It can be with, have a wonderful day. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. And these kind of things, you know, just a wave and a smile to somebody. These type of things is what makes the world such a wonderful place to live in. And it's up to us to create this heaven on earth. We can't expect that we're gonna sit back, we're gonna be grumpy, we're gonna be hostile, we're gonna require everyone to earn our respect, and then when everyone else starts doing things properly, then we'll start doing things properly. This isn't how the world needs to improve because now we've got a big log jam. So if all of us and more to come over the next many years of me sharing these teachings, if all of us are out in the world, practicing in this way, then the world slowly becomes a better and better place. And that's how the world gradually improves over time.
2: How can we apply the middle way to this? Because clearly there's no such thing really as too much generosity. But also one thing you mentioned earlier was that we need to be generous without creating dependencies. And one thing we often see in the world is that misplaced aid, for example, or misplaced generosity can actually have either not the best impact or it can have actually a detrimental impact in some cases and maybe that's not necessarily generosity maybe that's not the right word for those particular cases but I it seems that yes generosity helps our own practice and it also creates conditions for other people to experience benefits as well should we be discerning in how we offer it and where we offer it
1: I'm going to answer a question slightly different than what you asked, because I see an opportunity here to share something with you guys that I haven't shared before. And then I'll come back to your question, Max. All of these teachings of the Buddha all start with you. It all starts with you learning, reflecting on these teachings, seeing the wisdom for yourself to change the way the mind functions with this newfound wisdom, and then step into the world and start treating people differently than you have in the past, which includes treating yourself differently. If you've looked at yourself in a negative way or you've disparaged yourself, you've judged yourself, you have negative self-talk, you haven't treated yourself very well in this world, well, these teachings are a way when you first start out on this path and as you get going underway for a good long while is to really go within, just really look inward and work on your own mind. And that might be where you're at right now. And this is what Gautama Buddha talked about as seclusion. Gautama Buddha went out in the forest for four years. Ultimately, his whole journey was six years. If you look at Jesus Christ, he went out into the desert for 40 days, right? All of these people who have ascended and gained a level of enlightenment beyond where you might be right now have all gone inward as their first step to improving the mind and also improving the world. Where we oftentimes get it wrong is a lot of us try to fix everybody else first. We go outside and we try to fix everyone else or we try to fix our partners or our children. Meanwhile, you're not showing loving kindness and compassion and all these other mental qualities as well as generosity to yourself. So you've really got to go inward and work on yourself and then slowly but surely Step into the world and start practicing these teachings little by little and start connecting the dots and start putting it together. Have this one little conversation, trying to practice the five factors of well spoken speech. And when that goes well, you see the results and you reflect on that. And then you try to have another conversation and another and another. Same thing with these Brahma Viharas and this quality of generosity. Start small right? Don't step out in the world and try to save the whole world. That's not what these teachings are about. These teachings are about liberating your mind. So by going inward and showing yourself loving kindness, yourself compassion, yourself having sympathetic joy for when you're successful, also practicing this equanimity and treating yourself equally among all people and having generosity for yourself, then that's going to be helpful for you and when your mind is functioning better and better you're going to be better with other people right so that's really really important and to me that's the middle way what the buddha was calling the middle way we're calling a balanced lifestyle a lot of people talk about a balanced lifestyle but what is it what is a balanced lifestyle well a balanced lifestyle is taking these teachings and finding that middle and knowing that we need to be generous And we need to be helpful to people, but we also need to make sure that we're taking care of home base as well. So a lot of you guys know that I started out with the Thai teachings of Thai culture and Buddhism within the massage field. And I opened up massage centers in America. I had a massage school. I taught a lot of people, a lot of teachings and stuff like this. Well, once a week, I get a Thai massage for two hours. It's $20. And I do that once a week because I know that as much as I'm doing meditation, as much as I'm helping people 80 plus hours a week and all of these other things, it's not a pamper me kind of massage. It's to work on the body and it helps the physical body feel better. It's like medical care. And that's one thing that I do to be generous to myself, show loving kindness and compassion to myself to make sure that this physical body is feeling as good as it can feel, right? So you've got to make these decisions and balance all of this stuff, bringing it to the middle so that by you going inward and healing what's inside, then when you start speaking and you start having certain actions in the world, you're not harming other people. But if you're harming yourself and you're not taking good care of yourself, then you're less likely to be willing to take care of other people as well. So when I started diving into these teachings really, really deeply, I didn't step out and start teaching all of you. I didn't start teaching my son and my wife and everyone else. I worked on my own mind first. And then once that started becoming stable and started getting really solid. That's when I've slowly stepped out into the world and start practicing and start teaching more. So you guys saw that opened up a little Facebook group, shared a couple posts, more people came in. I started doing kind of like a group learning program with just posts. And then that was going well. Then I started offering online classes. Then I started doing a podcast. Then I started doing videos. Now we're offering another program of the Polycanon in English. Now we have classes here in chiang mai so slowly i'm building up more and more resources and ways of helping all of you guys but i didn't start there i started with me in my mind this mind right here and that's what you guys have to do too is you have to focus on that so even though a lot of today's talk focused on how you need to practice with other people be sure that it doesn't get lost on you, that you have to have all these same qualities for yourself as well before you can even have it for other people. Or, or do it at the same time, right? Like practicing having loving kindness for yourself while you're also practicing having loving kindness for other people. Practicing compassion for you while you're practicing it for other people as well. So you can be putting all these things into motion at the same time. Now to your question, Max. Can you repeat it for me?
2: Yeah, essentially it was how can we practice the middle way with generosity and ensure that we're doing the most good, really, when we decide to offer something, that we're not creating dependencies and that we're helping others as much as we're helping ourselves.
1: Yeah, this is going to be another case-by-case basis. Depending on where you decide to apply your time, effort, energy, and resources, if I was helping famine, poverty-stricken people, say in Africa or Thailand or Cambodia or Laos or Myanmar or any of these places in the world, I know in that situation, all they need is food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care, potentially in certain populations. And that's what they need. And that's maybe all I can provide. So knowing what you can provide and how to provide it and not being worried or anxious that gosh, this is all I can do. So in certain situations, that might be all you can do. And it might be up to other people at other points in time to do other things that you can't do in that situation. So every situation is different. You've got to look at your own life and make your own wise decisions about whether what you're actually doing and how you're actually providing it. There's no perfect recipe here but you've got to take care of your own needs and look for ways to help other people as well. And there's plenty of people in the world that need help. And if you are someone who's listening to this, consider yourself fortunate because there's millions of people in the world that don't even have the ability to get a device to even get on the internet and actually spend time to learn these type of things. They're so busy just sustaining their life and putting one meal to the next to the next that they don't even have time to do this. So all of us are in a situation that we can help and we should look for ways to do that as best we can. And only you are gonna know what that looks like when you're in the middle, you'll feel it. And you just have to go with that intuition. I'm not in a position to judge somebody else, whether they're helping enough or they're helping too little or too much. Each individual person has to make that decision for themselves, and only you are going to know what that is and when's the right time to do it and how to actually do it. You've just got to find that middle for yourself.
2: So where I live in Brighton, which is on the south coast of England, there's a very high number of homeless people, and I'll often stop and chat to them and try and get a feel for Uh, if I gave this person money, what's going to happen to that money? Are they just going to go and spend that on drugs? I'm not necessarily trying to figure out if they're on drugs, but just to see, is this a, a good way to practice generosity? And I began to question it because I was meeting with a friend of a friend a little while ago who actually works for a homeless charity. And she's a manager there. And she said to me outright, don't give them money. And this is someone whose livelihood is meant to be helping these people. She says, do not give them money because they will spend it on cigarettes and alcohol. And of course, that sounds a bit like permanence. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they won't all do that. But what you just said there about finding the middle and feeling the middle really resonates because I think within a few moments of talking to someone, you can often see if they're practicing a degree of right view, taking responsibility, and whether if they did have resources, are they actually going to use that in a productive way that is going to bring themselves out of the situation they're in? Or is it actually just fostering the situation that they're in?
1: Yeah. So one of the things I'll add to that is these four Brahma Vaharas and this fifth mental quality of generosity, which really interesting about these five mental states is When you bring down your craving, anger and ignorance, the self and ego or greed, hatred and delusion, what you're going to find is you're going to have a whole lot of time on your hands because you're spending a lot of time chasing after this craving, desire, attachment and going from one thing to the next to the next. When you start bringing down these three poisons and you start eliminating these 10 fetters from the mind, you're going to have a lot more time on your hands and that's going to give you more time to be able to practice loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and generosity, which is, once again, one of the reasons why an enlightened mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, because it's no longer experiencing all of this discontentedness, and you're practicing these type of qualities all the time with all people around you. So everything is just going wonderful for you, because you're no longer... Pursuing these selfish pursuits with craving, desire, attachment, with hatred, anger, and ill will, without delusion, ignorance, and unknowing of true reality, you're able to then allow these qualities to shine through because you've moved away this pollution of the mind. You're purified the mind, and you're now radiating these mental qualities instead of the defilements or the pollution of the mind. And that's one of the reasons why life just becomes so peaceful, because it's wonderful to go around and be loving and kind and compassionate and generous and have a calm mind and be so peaceful and never experience any discontentedness. It's a wonderful life. So the way to get there is to understand what an enlightened mind does, what an enlightened mind looks like. That's why it's chapter three at the very beginning of the book. And then just continue to work towards that more and more and more and more and more. So if you know the goal, which these mental states are part of the goal, just continue to move your mind in that direction little by little by little by little. And don't beat yourself up. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful if you haven't gotten there today or you're not there today. Don't feel like, oh my goodness, I gotta hurry up and do this. Just slowly, slowly, In Thailand, we call cha-cha, cha-cha, just slowly, slowly work towards this, gradually progress. Where you're in individual situations where you can be more generous, do that. Where you're in individual situations where you can have more loving kindness or compassion, do that. In situations where you see your mind isn't calm and composed, look to do that and don't beat yourself up about it if you're not there today, but just slowly work in that direction. That's the goal.
2: Well, thank you very much, David. We have no more questions.
1: Okay, so I'll just wish you guys a really wonderful rest of your day. This chapter is very, very short, just like the previous chapter. Next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 14, which is true love, love without attachment. We're going to be learning about relationships with life partners, with children, with parents, with friends, learning how to practice true love, which is love without attachment. Right now, you might feel that love is a very difficult subject or a very tricky thing to navigate, and maybe love has brought you a lot of heartache in your life, and maybe it's been very difficult for you to experience true love from other people as well as give true love. And one of the reasons why you've had trouble experiencing true love in your relationships is because you don't yet know how to give true love. So what next Sunday is gonna be about is helping you understand what love without attachment is, because the more you understand what that is and you're able to practice that, then you'll be able to be more readily able to receive true love in relationships, whether it's life partners, children, parents, Friends, coworkers, and all the other people around you. It will really help with this loving kindness and compassion as well. So, we're gonna be doing that on Sunday. This Wednesday, we're gonna be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as part of our Wednesday practice session. And we can also talk about these mental qualities if anything comes to mind between now and then that you have more questions about. We can discuss that. But as I mentioned last week, because this chapter is a little bit shorter, spend your time to really make sure you understand this chapter in this talk and listening to the podcast and maybe listening back to this class. But then also feel free to look into the other chapters as well that maybe you had a little bit more challenge with because this chapter is a little bit shorter. It kind of frees up your time to look to some of the other chapters and really deepen your understanding of something that you maybe found a little bit more challenging to grasp. I can tell you that The chapter on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and the Five Precepts, you can't learn those enough. You really can really focus on those, particularly the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, that chapter four and five. The more time you spend with reading that, listening to the audiobook, listening to the podcast, that's going to be really, really beneficial because in terms of developing a life practice... That Eightfold Path is the life practice with everything else kind of hanging off of that or somehow integrating into that Eightfold Path in one shape, form, or fashion. So if you're looking for something to sink your teeth into beyond Chapter 13 in the Brahma Viharas, look to Chapter 4 and 5, particularly Chapter 5, because that's where you'll really get a lot of results and benefits from focusing on the Eightfold Path, which is your life practice. So until Wednesday or Sunday at 9 o'clock, I wish all of you guys a really wonderful day. Thank you for joining, and thank you for taking time to learn and practice these teachings to help you, all of those people around you, and all of humanity. Because the more enlightened you become, it's not only helping you, but it's helping everyone around you and all of humanity. So thank you very much. Sawadee
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast.